white-hot magazine of contemporary art. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Noah Becker's White Hot Magazine podcast. I'm Evan Beard, a guest hosting today. I'm the executive vice president of Masterworks. We're a fractionalized ownership firm that is bringing art to the masses. I'm uh, joined today by Mike Mizell, author of Collecting the Now. Uh, Mike's been head of research at Abra, a major cryptocurrency services provider based in Mountain View. Um, he's also former um, affiliate of Harvard's Meta Lab, an art history professor, a museum curator. Uh, Mike took his PhD in art history from the University of Virginia and his MBA from MIT. Uh, so Mike, uh, welcome and congratulations on the new book. Uh, Mike and I have known each other for a few years and you know we're some of the folks that are really the cross section of both art and finance. Um, so, Mike, why don't you give us sort of the, the long arc of what you were diving into here, and then we'll, we'll delve into it. Yes, absolutely. Evan. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. So this book uh, got started, you know, it turned out to be my journey out of the academy. I, you know, it has many different origin points, but one of the, I think, the simplest just was standing in a classroom teaching in front of Michael Heiser's double negative, and I'm up there rambling about all of the things that a standard art history uh, professor would ramble about, you know, the sublime, the landscape, the journey of colonialism, the enlightenment, you know, scale, space, vision, singularity, the white male hero artist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I thought I'd covered this thing from every possible angle one could think about it from. And a student raised her hand and just says, uh, Professor Mizells, who paid for this? And I was so stunned by the obviousness and the importance of a question like that, and then also just completely embarrassed by my own ignorance of a good answer to that, I thought, huh, maybe I should go home and look that up and see if there's a story there. And it turned out there was kind of a story there, and there was a story a lot of different places I hadn't thought to look, and then looking at it so hard, I kind of found myself looking at the problem so deeply from the inside, I was uh, on the outside of where I'd started the journey, but maybe we'll get there uh, in time. <laughs> so you really wanted to unpack the, not necessarily the arc of the art market, but how this no. <laughs> market came to be? Yeah, I think so. Or that studies of the art market in and of their own terms, I think, you know, can be interesting, but are rarely interesting as art history. And that it had seemed to me there had been a false division from attention to art historical change and then a separation from the study of the art market, which may or may not have to do with secondary sales of like long deceased masters. It's like, you know, many, many things going on there. But rather that one could look at art historical change through the lens of financial innovation. And this doesn't have to mean, you know, like 100x VC backed, create, you know, everything is going to be completely different because, you know, this one uh, sort of idea, but that attention to the changing ways that money behaves behind the scenes of key moments in art history, right? And that's, I did on purpose did not say galleries, right? Because profit run galleries are only one of the kind of ecosystem that money flows through in an art world right so the book wound up being divided into these four chapters which i'd love to just spend a few moments talking about um each of them uh that looked at 
It was a pop art, basically land art, media art, and then returned to painting in the 1980s. All of those movements are all in quotation marks since everybody's too new to say, oh, this is a thing, this isn't a thing, this is a made up thing, okay, fine. It's four moments, two of which are ostensibly operated as nonprofits, two of which are operated as uh, for-profit galleries, but with very opposed principles for how one goes about creating value through the work of living artists. And one can see a kind of parity between how something is paid for and what it turns out to look like and what it turns out to be and how it's taught to behave critically because of the financing conditions around how it came together in the first place. And we can dive into any example from any of those chapters if you would care to. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I agree with you. Most art historians do not look at the under, you know, the underpinning economics of these key moments in the development of art history, uh, and economists tend not to look at the cultural side. Um, so you mentioned these four case studies that the book is really built around, and I, you know, the first is really this character, uh, Leo Castelli, and you know, most folks in the art world will know exactly who you're talking about, but why don't you give us, who is Leo Castelli and why is he a critical juncture in the development of contemporary art? Uh, through the blunt lens of the sports metaphor, Leo Castelli is, uh, you know, Nick Saban of college football, Bill Belichick of his dominant area with the Patriots rolled into one. He's the most dominant older white guy standing on the sidelines of the franchise that rewrote the history of the decade. Right. And how did he come to find himself there? And Castelli is somebody who I've studied very closely and have a very mixed conceptual personal relationship with. Like, what was was what he was doing good or bad? Was it good at the time and it looks bad in hindsight? Was it something that turned out only to be able to be bad because of the good that it managed to do? It's a very conflicted kind of situation. But he orchestrated in some ways the emergence of an art world out of which before there had been flickers of things, but a self-sustaining financial ecosystem just really didn't exist in New York before Leo Castelli got on the scene. You can think about, you know, for those of you who have studied the history of this period a little more in depth, you know, the kind of miserable lives that are alluded to behind the scenes for the, you know, New York uh, School Abstract Expressionist painters. And then you, you know, can follow Jasper Johns on Instagram. You know, there's a reason all the Abex painters died poor and miserable, and Johns is alive and attending galas as of right now. That story has um, <clears throat> attracted attention from art historians, how this was possible to begin, you know, a, a world in which Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg, all of these artists could see the rise of their uh, sales figures in real time, you know, in front of their very eyes. None of that was possible for Costello. So how did he do it, right? And the argument has been, oh, he was good at, you know, placing things. It was a boom economy. He was kind of running some inside game at things like the Venice Biennale. Like all of these things are true. He did do all of that, but none of them could explain the zero to one emergence of an art world that seems to kind of happen under his umbrella. And the uh, very discomforting answer that I stumbled upon when I was reviewing uh, the ledgers of his in Smithsonian is that he was basically selling fraud as a service. So this, there is one transaction that I detail uh, in, in close uh, granularity in the book where Leo Castelli, and this is a great example of what I mean by financial innovation driving creative innovation. So when I was taught about all of this work as a student, you get taught about 
profusion and heterogeneity being the exemplars of what, you know, under Castelli gets called neo-data, but early pop happenings, all of these different things. So Castelli, even before any of his artists had started gaining any traction, made this very genteel move. And I think everything Castelli does ultimately is manifests his uh, attention and care for the artists under his umbrella, which is a noble thing, but he was willing to basically do anything ethical or otherwise in order to support that. He wants to pay them a salary, which is nice because they can know how much they'll make in a given month and are free to make a motley assortment of strange looking things rather than one big canvas they hope will be in one big rich person's diner, AKA and this was all a new in his thing. generation. This was uh, new. Brand new under the sun, uh, certainly not unprecedented, but unusual at the time in America. He decided to bring something that might have been expected from, you know, the days of like Vollard and Picasso or even sort of before then over to the States and give it a real try this time, right? He's going to kind of be, you know, Vollard of New York. We'll see how this goes. We'll pay an artist stable and we'll, you know, find out what we can do here. He also is playing the very, the game of, like uh, trying to think of how to say this, age prestige arbitrage. So there will be shows with masters from Europe, you know, commercial galleries in New York, commercial galleries overseas. There'll be articles written by, and again, you can see how I might enter into a kind of complicated relationship with this concept, runaway art history academics from places like Columbia and NYU who are sort of doing something a little outre by willingly engaging in a dialogue with a contemporary artist. Castelli was paying them. That fact is not typically well known, but it, you know, it's still true. He's kind of financing the creation of a scholarly record around his stable. Okay, that is interesting. You know, he's paying salaries, he's making kind of investments in, in the work, intellectual investments, material investments, all these different things. But you got to have a payoff at some point, right? And uh, this operation is expensive to maintain into perpetuity, and it's full of ups and downs. And so he finds himself in need of a loan. This is something that in any normal line of business, you could go get a working capital loan from a bank. Most major industries operate with the idea that something might need to be uh, paid for before the thing that can finance it would yet, ha yet have already been sold. So a loan exists to bridge the gap. Think, you know, building a house, selling a house, exact same idea. Um, but working capital loans do not exist for art galleries, definitely not for contemporary art galleries in the 1960s. So Excelli has to go somewhere if he can't go to a bank. Where he goes is into the arms of his biggest collector and clearly most energetic, loudmouthy companion named Robert Skull, who gives him a loan. I have all of these ledgers are documented in the book, by the way, for $20,000 in 1962. And then in March 1963, there's a fascinating memo that uh, survives in Castelli's files from the uh, Art Dealers Association that basically says the IRS has changed its, uh, changed its rules around what you're permitted to deduct uh, from your taxes. And this is how we're going to ensure compliance amongst all of our member galleries going forward. And read upside down, it's a very clear recipe for how to get away with cheating. Two months after that, there's another transaction. Castelli sells Johns the biggest, most expensive painting of his career and uses those funds to pay back the loan. Okay, 
big thing gets donated to MoMA at the end of the summer with much fanfare. It's even written in as a part of the justification for the sale. There's a feud with another collector, so it ultimately has to go to the museum, but it's going to be Skull, the one that buys it. Okay, fine. There's like a lot of, a lot of fanfare there. But what really happened, Castelli bragged about during an oral history, right on page 100 and something of like a 16-hour transcript. The only reason I was able to find this was that thing was digitized. There's no way I was you know, going to be able to, to find this needle in a haystack otherwise. But Castelli explains what happens. And he explains that he helped orchestrate a $130,000 valuation for this painting he sold for $15,000 a few weeks ago. That valuation is then used to deduct from Robert Skull's income taxes. So it is as though he earned $130,000 less in income, which is that much less in taxes. And at those extremely high marginal rates in the 1960s, that might be $100,000 less in taxes. You fast forward that to inflation to 2022, that's like a million dollars. It's like a million dollar fraud perpetrated on the New York taxpayer in order to install Jasper Johns at MoMA. And then once that linchpin is in place, all kinds of crazy funny business unfold from there. Maybe we should take a pause and just talk about that because I heard you have a uh, question. Is it is it outright fraud or was it a, uh, did the tax system allow for it? And it, just so I understand, so are you telling us that there is an incentive to buy a work of art, get it appraised at a much higher value, and donate it to an institution to realize an outsized tax benefit? Is, is that ultimately the trade that we're talking about? Yes, that is exactly ultimately the trade that you are talking about. And I think you are correct to point out that one could read all of this as a prophecy that Castelli did, in fact, manage to make self-fulfilling. So several decades after this fact, there's an extremely famous event in 1980 where a Jasper Johns is in fact bought by the Whitney Museum for a million dollars. Not a million dollars adjusted for inflation, but a million dollars in 1980. Hmm. That fact became true because of the engineering, both the intellectual pedigree and the finance valuation adjustment protocols that Castelli did on behalf of Johns on both sides of the balance sheet with left and right arms hugged around him. So it's a complicated question to say that initial thing that gets the system in motion, is that fraud or not, right? Because one could argue that it wasn't fraud because it was the first step towards a thing that Castelli actually did, which was to make these million dollar payments. To me, that's not justifiably true enough when it happens. I think it's fraud. Would you go to the next step and argue that Castelli being at the forefront of this and the artists in his stable, like Jasper Johns and Rauschenberg, did they end up more in institutional collections because of this trade? And are you oh, making yeah. the argument? that you know Hugely. it's not just yes. that he was a great selector of talent but you know the top collectors were incentivized to buy these works for tax purposes completely yes i'm explicitly making that argument and the implications of that 
was part of what drove me out of my mainline academic position in 2018, which was as a professor, tenure track professor of art history at the University of Arkansas. So when I was a younger graduate student, I had studied with this John scholar who I, you know, just to be fair, I've never liked the work of Jasper Johns. I've liked the work of some of his contemporaries. I think Rauschenberg, you know, some of, some of it captures my attention. I used to strongly have a negative reaction to Warhol. I now have a strongly positive, none of this matters. But the point being, I've never liked Johns's work. I've always been skeptical of it somehow. And I remember putting pressure on this with the eminent Johns person I was studying with, say, I just don't get it. You know, like Wittgenstein, whatever, copying colors, primary vision. I just don't, just don't see it. And he said, fine, Mike, just, you know, ignore all those objections you have. And you have to understand that it's Johns who kind of breaks the sound barrier around the major museum complex and young Americans. And he breaks it repeatedly. And if for nothing else, that writes his name into history. I said, whoa, okay, that sounds true enough. All right, that's how Jasper Johns is gonna be explained as I you know, might be responsible for teaching this material. Like, oh, what's important about Johns? Well, okay, sure, some people say it's like Wittgenstein, but like, look at this from an institutional perspective. Johns gets absorbed into the institution. That's important, okay, fine, now we're on the next chapter. But then, recognizing that that historical ascription was like an after effect of this system that I had been sort of taught almost happened. Like um, it, this is how the avalanche tumbled down the mountain when in fact the avalanche had been authored. And in fact, the avalanche was actually just an almost, you could call it an after effect of something happening in the tectonic plates underneath the financing. I was like, I have to understand the finance. And this is where the, the action of all of this actually will turn out to lie. So I'm gonna leave my, uh, my job teaching school for a job being in school and did my MBA uh, from MIT in 2020. Now, very interesting. Um, you mentioned someone, Robert Skull, and Robert Skull uh, played an important role, both it sounds like in helping to finance the Castelli Gallery, but he also played an important role in the rise of contemporary art. Put him into context for our listeners. That's a good question. Who is a who is a Robert Skull analog? He's a nouveau riche, loudmouth taxi magnate who curdled the blood of Castelli's better-heeled blue blood collectors like the Tremaines and Barr but who clearly was just throwing money at every kind of contemporary art he could. I think partly because he saw in it an opportunity for kind of insidery gains like this with Johns. But I think the goal in this stuff is rarely, or at least at this moment, was rarely cynical, naked, flip, you know, don't care about the art at all. Because it was so, it was so much more socially non-acceptable to be associated with contemporary artistic practice in 1960 compared to 2020. It was disreputable to even be in the legitimate version of this business. So no one would get into this business only looking to make a quick buck because this wasn't quick buck land. This was weirdo land. This is where the weirdos went to hang out. And sure, there were make a quick buck opportunities, but the folks who came in, especially looking to collect, were doing so from a place of just for better or worse, overspilling generosity, right? The generosity sometimes one could argue was sort of senseless. There was a, I think a beautiful anecdote about Skull that is much less known. Oh, okay, so I have two quick stories, one famous one and one not. 
Jasper Johns' two painted bronzes, right? I think a lot of folks in the audience might know the story that supposedly those are commissioned because uh, Johns overhears de Kooning saying about Castelli, oh, you could give that son of a bitch two beer cans and he'd be able to sell them. Johns thinks this is funny and he makes a sculpture about it that Castelli sells to Robert Skull. Skull being on the receiving end of the most famous anecdote of Castelli the master salesman is an important piece of the story that's often missing from the normal versions of this. Okay, fine. But Skull's a complicated character. So another artist whose Skull was deep in the backing of was Michael Heiser, before Michael Heiser is well known or famous or anything. And Skull finances an important we'll call it like preparatory sketch for some of the huge land art, like Double Negative or City that just opened that he gets famous for later. It's called Nine Nevada Depressions, some of which are actually made with Michael Heiser on a motorcycle. And the idea is the sculpture might be, you know, a square mile, but only a quarter inch deep. That's a kind of interesting dimension of the sculpture. Very beautiful, very temporary, strange, and documented in these black and white photographs. They're kind of, uh, you know, well-known of, of some of his work, some, why some of it is coming in a minute. Skull, excuse me, Heiser gives, uh, I'm even going to take a step back. This project originates out of a cold letter. Heiser just writes to Skull and says, hi, I have an idea for a huge temporary work in the desert, and I am an important artist, and I'd like a couple thousand bucks. And Skull, sight on scene, gives it to him and keeps giving it to him and gives it to them to the point that he realizes he spent some huge quantity of money, it's like $20,000, something that I've checked my notes for an exact figure, and decides to just fly out and visit him to see what the hell he's been doing out there. And Heiser gives him this book that he's been making, documenting these very beautiful, very temporary, very large sculptures that he's been making out there in the desert. Skull flies home, eventually Heiser flies home, they see each other later, and Heiser asks him for the book back for unspecified reasons, he's gonna help custom whatever, he destroys it. Because even that document was too permanent for him. One kind of collector mind, mindset would have been incensed by this. And when Skull told the anecdote, he said it was both the greatest mistake he ever made giving Heiser that book, but also a testament to what was so great about Heiser as an artist, was that he was going to follow through and complete the work no matter what. So there's a certain sense in which it's like it's not about the return for uh for skull always necessarily all the time i think he uh, probably played both sides of the uh you know we'll call it the profit and the non-profit piece of this both of them were played to a hilt interesting and he along the way gained status and ultimately upon the with his yeah, notoriety and a lot, yeah. he gained a lot of things through this uh, topsy turvy journey through uh, you know through the patronage and contemporary art world. So Castelli and Skull, you know, they they give rise to this you know interesting market. You know, some of it's through you know exploitation of a tax system. You know, this new idea of providing stipend to artists so they can almost be you know contractors and not have to live and die with every work they sold which brought some, you know, stability to them. Mm -hmm. uh, then you then explore Virginia Dwan, and it seems like you're going in, you know, the rise of com 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 work that is completely commercially non-viable. Why did you go, in, well, first explain who Virginia Dwan is, why she's important here, and the rise of some of these sort of non-commercially viable 
and why sort of they played an interest in the development of the market, the broader market. Yes, uh, absolutely. So it, I, uh, before I do that, I just want to point out that the ascription of non-financially viable, non-commercially motivated, Dwan would have resisted that. Uh, she tried. It just was non-viable for what she was doing. But she always said, I was a commercial gallery I was running. So Dwan uh, is the most important both dealer and patron. And that's part of the key argument of the chapters. There's an, a very unusual symmetry around her um, of land art. It's a term that she winds up coining, you know, in connection with, uh, you know, earthworks uh, from her most famous uh, artist whom she patronized, Robert Smithson. And one of the things that uh, is not well known about Dwan uh, when she uh, is discussed, uh, which is not, you know, more because of a, a beautiful retrospective of, you know, her life's work at the National Gallery of Art a few years ago. Um, but she was heiress to a to 3M fortune which is, uh, I can't, the exact name is, I think it's a Minnesota materials and mining uh, company. So she is literally the heir of a mining fortune, begins her life or your sort of professional, like I think it's with the equivalent of 30 or $50 million adjusted for inflation. So she's, you know, sort of fixed this free to spend money on things she finds compelling and interesting. She winds up getting involved in this kind of work that is premised on being physically massive, right? So this is again, Heiser, Smithson. This is the, the answer to my student's question of Michael Heiser's who paid for this is Virginia Dwan. It does turn out to be kind of that simple. But as she gets into financing these things, again, remember, they're always supposed to kind of be for sale. She winds up because they begin their lives on a doomed adventure to be sold to somebody, nobody, it turns out, is really willing to buy a giant canyon out in the middle of the desert that can't be moved. Eventually, the, the paper shuffling games becomes a little more interesting, but that's still you know, a little farther into the future. Dwan winds up inheriting title to these things. So then from there, the paper shuffling game can begin very much later because these things have had an institutional collectory kind of home and weren't sort of foisted on the market in any kind of way. So that Duan slowly starts networking, building, being an example for, you know, how much of this, you know, was, was mutual strategy and how much of this is, you know, emulation. It's impossible to determine it doesn't matter. But things like the Dia Foundation, right? The Manils in Houston, these big post-industrial, site-specific, generative object installation things, that idiom is possible because of Virginia Dwan. In the same way that Warhol and Jasper Johnson iterated pop multiple are possible because of what Castelli was able to do in terms of putting the financial pipes together in a new way, that same exact argument applies to Dwan and we'll call it big stuff far away. You know, if pop is like a lot of little stuff here right now, there's a different land art, big stuff over there now, idiom that emerges through Dwan. Interesting. And uh, why why did this type of art come onto the scene? Was it a response to the Castelli generation or sort of a, just a natural and that's the, 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 was sort of the like explanatory question for me, the whole book was, it, it, it was a reaction to Castelli, right? And that's the way it was always been taught. And that to me is completely 100% correct. 
we're rejecting the kind of like object painting mass culture you know like the uh it's like warhol didn't go far enough right we got to say no to the whole tradition pollock and everything before him is in you know ideologically equivalent to itself it's like single one hero master painting thing okay once we've said no to that the question is how how hard can we say no to the next thing so pop at all Costelli, and this is the sort of canonical version of the story comes along and says oh it's going to be seriated it's going to be little it's going to be grubby it's going to be you know soup cans in a gallery right and then the next half generation comes along duan and says not far enough we've got to get rid of the object form we've got to get rid of the white cube we got to get rid of the object as such right and this is like you know speaking of things we like this is some of my favorite work I don't know that that matters at all, but I think some of these pieces are genius. Like Robert Barry makes this work uh, that is a, <clears throat> in quotation marks, sculpture that is neon gas he briefly released into the desert, right? That's like a genius sculpture. It's impossible to imagine a sculpture that is less weighty, that is less visible, that is less temporary than that. It's like the most minimal possible sculptural gesture. It's like, a, I mean, I've been a genius piece, but it's one of those complicated, big stuff, far away there kinds of projects that totally emerge as a rejection, a further rejection of the Avex idiom. All that is fine and true. I think our historians got all that right, but nobody explains how it could have happened, right? Castelli couldn't have, wouldn't have wanted to, land art wouldn't have been in the way that it was without Duan. And I think in order to tell that story, you have to be able to tell that story as it like walks its feet one side through art historical change and one side through financial experimentation. Yeah, so interesting. And then, you know, sensitive to our time here, you get into mm -hmm. yes, for the sure. booming um, 80s and Mary Boone. Uh, you know, how yeah, did that so I was gonna say I'll wrap up uh, you know chapter three four the conclusion like the NFT craze quickly because I don't you know want to uh, I'll encourage uh, interested readers to go uh, buy the book or go visit the special project website noscholarlyvalue.xyz trying to get some open financial records for the art world here um, <clears throat> but I will say that the next two chapters plus conclusion plus will gesture towards NFT craze today follow the same general pattern with a couple of just super salient points that I'll hit. So chapter three is dedicated to a very important uh, guy named Howard Wise. Uh, not many know his name. Many might recognize Electronic Arts Intermix. It's basically the institution that brings electronic art into the cultural construct edifice, right? Castelli kind of breaks this ground originally. EAI is in there with Bruce Nauman and all of the other, we're, we're going to call them canonical media artists how there came to be a canon of media artists is because of Howard Wise. Wise is maybe the only one who really sets out to do this completely non-for-profit. He has his own independent money, quickly runs out of it, doesn't have quite as much as Duan had, but recognizes that it's the grant idiom that's going to support this. And it's everything else that happens in media art, even up to the whole NFT, we're all going to own it amongst each other idiom has to do with an imprint of grant funding from the very beginning, as I argue in the chapter, and I will let you all read it. You can tell me whether you buy the argument or not, send me an email, I usually respond to cold emails. And then the last chapter looks at Mary Boone in the 1980s, a controversial, heated figure, and I'll point out a, a key goal of mine, and I think it wasn't uh, forced to do this, but it was a, a good call out to have the, the highlighted impetus to do so. Half the spaces are run by women. 
So that was part of the organizing principles of the chapters was that it was supposed to be half profit driven and half non and half uh, run by women. So Mary Boone, very interesting figure and very uh, interpersonally and in my argument, conceptually intertwined with innovations happening in Wall Street, which have to do basically with the rise of futures, the rise of margin uh, and the ways that those constructs get uh, imported into the art world, partly through her and partly through Sotheby's. So Sotheby's is a new CEO during this uh, period. And Sotheby's and Boone basically play the role of the most important secondary market, most important primary market dealer, and generate names, the most famous of whom is, of course, Jean-Michel Basquiat, but Schnabel and all of these other great painters, many of whom see their fortunes rise and fall very fast because they basically didn't do what all three of the other preceding chapters did, was assiduously seed a structure within the walls of the museum. For better or worse, Boone says, we're going to go it alone without MoMA, and then Prices rise, prices fall, and MoMA says, eh, we never really cared about this stuff uh, you know, at first. And now it's like having a, a moment of recovery or whatever. Um, but it's interesting to see who tries to play the long and the short game and what that has to do with how the money flows. That's so interesting. And Sotheby's, during that time in the 80s, launches their financial services department and no. uh, lending against... With working capital. Lending yes, the exactly. bidding, huh? Yes, yeah, yeah, both working capital loans for dealers as well as lending against objects. Um, you know, Evan, I'm not keeping careful track of time. I'd love, you know, uh, for you to even just offer some thoughts about fractionalization, uh, you know, and how that is potentially driving change so we could respond to in light of the book, you know, for a moment or two and then can thank our listeners for their time. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think the development of this market has been so interesting. In my initial uh, part of my career, I was on the lending side as well at a big bank lending against works of art. And I've been so struck on you know how many collectors are now so financially sophisticated and don't necessarily collect because they want to make an investment in art, but rather, you know, are keeping at least one eye on how their art performs as an asset class. And so mm -hmm. I think you know, the, the next phase of this is now, you know, retail and smaller investors who may not have the access to the upper reaches of the art market. Um, so, you know, Masterworks is ultimately, we buy paintings at the million dollar and up range, we fractionalize them and we give the retail investor a chance to own a slice of a Basquiat, a slice of a Picasso. And I've been surprised at the retail demand for it. You know, we have, you know, about 650 million worth of art and all of it owned by, you know, small mass affluent, to, you know, a few ultra high net worth investors. And we're at the early stages, it'll see, but it is sort of this next phase. And um, I'm not sure where it'll go. We're excited about it, but you know, it, it's all, it all builds on itself. I was about to ask you that question. So in light of the discussion we were just having about funding imprints uh, and we'll call it, structural patterns. To me, there's an interesting, two things are growing together around fractionalization, just as you described it. And, you know, not to get all crypto-y, but distributed governance through something like a DAO. Um, I'm curious, do you see that as a potential, um, yeah, inner, like, do you want all of the owners or some of the owners of the, the Basquiat that's been fractionalized to start talking to each other about what ought to be done, whether it's to the Basquiat, to something else, you know, do you want them participating in, in that, uh, in, in ownership in that way? We find the DAO idea very, very interesting. And we, we've watched as there's been certain DAOs that have 
together, bid on works that have come to auction. Um, we, we have not yet found a reason why we should put these things on the blockchain. I mean, we're not convinced it'll help transparency. We do see some blockchain companies. Uh, I think it's a very interesting idea, but I don't know if fractionalizing something on the chain versus just in the web 1.0 world or 2.0 world will make all that great a bit of difference, but we'll see. Oh, no, I agree with you completely about that. No, I think you're right that that, that piece of this being on the blockchain or not um, maybe is not uh, you know the, the most interesting thing. But I think it's really interesting to think about the, the future of concepts of things like ownership, right? Like, do you own a thousandth of a Basquiat in the same way that you own the Basquiat? Maybe, but I think part of what's interesting there is even if you own the Basquiat by one one thousandth financially, there are new social protocols emerging that permit you to own that one one thousandth in a fractional way in terms of a fate over what happens to it, you sort of a control piece in addition to a kind of financial ownership that I think is like a super interesting construct right it's like we all own it a little bit we there's some mechanism through which we decide things about its future i think it's an interesting area of overlap i've been deep in dowland for my uh for my work at abra which we should not probably even barely get into because i'm sure we're like out of time um but evan thank you very much for this uh very very interesting conversation and hopefully uh, the white hot uh listeners found it entertaining also and thank you, Michael. Uh, this has been fun. Um, I'm excited uh, that folks will get to read your book and uh, find it, what, University of Michi Michigan Press? Yes, and, uh, uh, University and of Michigan Press, Collecting the Now and No Scholarly Value.xyz. Thank you all so much. Thank you. All right. Well, good job.